Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, brought to you by Generation to Generation, where you will be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future, as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. Hello everyone, this is Andrew and Daphne from Generation to Generation, and our guest today is Yotam Dagan. Now, Yotam, for people that don't know who you are, can you just say a bit about where you're from and what you do? Hello everyone, it's uh, great being with you. Uh, my name is Yotam Dagan, I'm a retired commander, uh, former Israeli Navy SEAL, um, who became a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, uh, and I have been helping people with post-traumatic stress disorder for many years, one of them is myself. I am Israeli, born and raised on a kibbutz in Israel, and today I live in the northern part of Israel. And people are going to listen to this because we're going to be talking through some of the things you write about in a book. And so for people that hear this, they say, you know, what? I want to find out more about him. I want to find this book. I want to get it. Uh, we recommend people do. Uh, where can they do that? So my new book, A Time to Kill, A Time to Heal, an Israeli Navy SEAL's journey um, is coming out these days, literally end of 2020. Um, and we'll be on Amazon, um, and you could get it anywhere. Okay, perfect. I, I will put links um, in the description. So for people listening, uh, go check out the links and, and, and get this book. There's a lot for us all to learn through this oh, yeah. in our own lives. This isn't just about a Navy SEALs journey, um, but this is there are principles here that all of us can learn from and take from. Um, and you being a clinical psychologist is kind of the tail end of that book. So we want to go back to the beginning. Um, and so for people listening, can you just give a bit of your background, where you grew up, um, what was it like growing up in, in that area? So I was born on an Israeli kibbutz called Magan Michael. It's on the Mediterranean coast of Israel, about halfway between Haifa and Tel Aviv. And a childhood that was full of wonder, uh, a very, very cohesive society, very idealistic at the time. Um, as children, we were raised uh, in, in the children's house, like dormitories, uh, away from our parents. Actually, um, I left my home, my, my parents' home, um, when I think I was about a few hours uh, old. Wow. <laughs> and um, it, was, it, was, it was beautiful, but it was a mo modern Sparta, uh, preparing us to become soldiers, uh, in the quest for Israel's uh, independence and uh, nation building. Um, when I was 11 years old, I survived a terrorist attack. Um, a group of uh, Palestinian terrorists um, came with um, rubber boats from a mothership. Uh, they wanted to land in the beaches of Tel Aviv, but uh, the high seas took them to the north to where I, I was. And um, I was hiding in the bush and survived. Many, many people were killed in that attack. Um, at age 15, I became the trained sniper on the kibbutz SWAT team, special weapons and tactics team, because we had to be ready should another um, attack like this happen. And uh, at 18, I joined the Israeli Navy SEALs, uh, Shayet at 13, or the 13th flotilla. Um, and I became head of an underwater demolition team and um, a few years into that, um, I actually closed the circle of destiny by diving, stealthily diving into uh, a Lebanese port where another mothership with rubber boats 
and a lot of ammunition and weapons was ready to launch another deadly attack against my people, against my home, and we managed to stop it by blowing that ship up. Wow. And what for you, what were the consequences um, of that terrorist attack as a child? How did that affect you? So I think that um, it, affect, it affected me in many ways, some of which I um, became aware uh, many years later. First of all, um, imagine that you live in this very, very peaceful place, the sea, the beach, the fish ponds where uh, we, we were growing fish um, and uh, totally free, totally wandering around. And all of a sudden there's this near death experience, which was obviously very, very frightening. Um, and all of a sudden, the, my childhood, uh, you know, uh, sanctuary became a frontier. Mm -hmm. So on that note, um, you know, you go to sleep at night and you're afraid that someone would attack you like it happened a few weeks ago or a few years ago. So that was one, um, one, one um, I would say, main effect. The other one, which I came to know years later, was that after that, uh, attack that the terrorists bypassed the kibbutz and they stopped a bus on the coastal road and drove it towards Tel Aviv and they were stopped on the outskirts of Tel Aviv um, and there was a massacre there with uh, dozens of Israelis whole families that perished there and um, two, two days later the Israeli defense forces launched the first um, attack uh, against uh, the south of Lebanon and in those hostili hostilities um, a 20 year old soldier named Reuven Ruvik Sarig uh, was killed uh, when his armed, armored vehicle was um, hit by an IED and uh, improvised uh, um, explosive device. Um, and of course, I didn't know it at the time. I did not know him, but that, that was in 1978. And in 1985, I met his sister, Iris, who became my wife and the mother of our four boys. So wow. This connection of, you know, blood and family and terror and fighting is part of my story and part of my journey. Mm. So, um, it's a phrase I read once that some people, when given lemons, turn it into lemonade and some people turn it into sour and something sour. And certainly your childhood seems to have set you on a course in that where negative things actually gave you a good foundation for what for your life or what was to come ahead of time. But before we get into anything too intense, please tell everybody the story of your ring. So Iris and I uh, met in 1985. We were going steady for quite a few years um, before we finally decided to um, make it formal and get married and have a family. Um, and at that process, um, we, of course, I, I was by, by that by that time I was um, like a son to her parents. I, their home became my home, and um, just before the marriage, her father, her late father, um, gave us two rings, which coincidentally uh, fitted fit perfectly, uh, one for me and one for her. And then he told us a story which, until that time, we have never heard. Uh, it was his father, Max. Um, was born in, in Poland, um, and when the Second World War broke, he was 10 years old. Um, they were a family, of, they had a family of means, um, merchants, uh, not far from the, uh, from, the, um, from the border 
with uh, Russia. Um, and when when the, uh, the the German the Germans and the the uh, Soviets uh, overtook Poland, um, they were actually de de deported to Siberia. Uh, him and his family, um, just before they left home and flew and just ran away, uh, one of his uncles took an old uh, clock, an old watch, golden watch that. Um, he actually got from his grandmother and hid it in the sole of his shoe. He just kind of dug a hole in it and put it inside and uh, made sure that, uh, that, that uh, it could not be found. And for all those years in Siberia, which they hardly survived, you know, the hunger and the cold and the, the plagues, um, it was hidden there. And when the war uh, was over and they, they came back to Poland just to find that nothing was left of their home and uh, of their wealth. Um, they, they remembered that uh, the, the, the watch was there and they opened it, but because he stepped on it for so many uh, years for, for such a long time, the, uh, the watch was completely squashed, squeezed, and um, it was just, there was nothing left of it except for some gold. So that gold was actually many years later um, melted and turned into wedding rings who were uh, Iris's parents and they, they gave it to us and we still wear them uh, to this day. And I think that um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, symbol, symbolism here because, you know, it's, well, bad things happen. And the, um, the challenge is to bounce, not just bounce back, but bounce forward mm -hmm. and to, yeah. build, uh, to build good things and strong things from what you've gone through. And I think that this watch that was obviously ruined, but then created something out of it that was, um, you know, is so powerful in the form of our family. And, um, and this is something that I will definitely want to pass on to my sons. Yeah. The phrase came to me when you were saying, and, and then you said this this was um, melted, went through fire. And I thought people are refined through fire and suffering. Mm. And that ring symbolizes both the fire and the suffering that it was refined in order to give you your ring. It's a beautiful it, yeah. story. Yeah. Beautiful Symbol of story. the bond and mm. bond between you. Wow. So wow. then you decided to go and be a Navy SEAL. And can you give people a glimpse into um, the training. One phrase you said, the sense, um, the only good day was yesterday. <laughs> Which I yeah. thought. Yesterday. Yeah. 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 So, the, no, the, uh, the, the only easy day was yeah. yesterday. So can you tell us something? I mean, there was a seven minute runs, there's a sleeplessness, um, there, there's so many things, but can you tell us a few stories about what this training involved? So um, Navy SEALs, uh, first of all, the, uh, the the name of the Israeli unit, which I served in is Shayetet 13 or the 13th Flotilla. Uh, in, in, the, in the United States, the Navy SEALs um, are the, the our sister unit. Um, and um, SEALs is actually an acronym, stands for Sea Air Land. So we're amphibious, underwater, from the water, on land, through air, everything. And that means that the training is long. It's very, very, very hard. And it needs, it has to get you to, um, to a situation in which 
under all circumstances, you can deliver. You can go out there and fight and get the mission done when it's cold, when it's, uh, when it's painful, when there's an enemy. Um, and um, so being, being a soldier, ground, you know, infantry, special forces on the ground is hard. You have to carry a lot of weight. You have to um, walk long distances and carry a lot of things and, and do very, very complex mission. Here, we have all that, but we also have the sea. And the water is cold and the, the sea has its currents and winds and nothing is constant. It's changing all the time. So you need to develop a very, very special situational awareness of all of the time knowing what's, where, where, where you are, what's happening around you, and then being on top of that uh, as you go out and perform your missions. So in order for, um, for, for, to achieve th this goal, um, first of all, we have to make sure that we have the right stuff. We have to get the right people to the unit. And then there's a long training phase in which many of them do not stay because it's too hard for them or um, it's just, do, do they, they just do not fit. So they need to move to serve in another unit. Um, it starts as regular infantry training um, and then comes the naval part. The first part, the BUDS training, which is the, um, it's like a three, four months period in which uh, very little sleep, um, a lot of physical uh, training and um, uh, the, the, the um, long runs and long swims. And that's before even we start diving, just to kind of get acquainted to this new environment. Um, and sometimes it's, it's finding that um, determination and stamina and even enough aggr aggressiveness to be able to cock your AK-47 Klachnikov rifle when your fingers are actually frozen. Mm -hmm. So you can't really uh, um, grip, you, you don't have the grip and, um, and, and, and those things are very, very hard. And at any given moment, one can say, this is not for me, I wanna go home and you're home, but you can't go back to the unit. So um, many of my uh, friends uh, could not stay there and just left. Some of them were found to be to not fit the unit. The, the, they, they just could not become Navy SEALs. And uh, out of a group of um, over 70, we, uh, we uh, graduated. There were 13 of us. Wow. So, and, and we, us being generation to generation, are very interested in the, the influence between generations. And and maybe some of your own story um, led you down this path. But also, um, we, we read about the impact of your grandmother. And can you talk to us about her and the influence her story had on yours? Um, and for people listening that have been to Israel with us, uh, we take them to this place called the Ayalon Institute. And so a lot of them will recognize this place as you share this story. But um, it's a very powerful place to go to a very powerful story to hear about and uh we we were excited when we saw about your grandmother's story and her roots from the Aelon Institute so can you share some about that story and the impact it had on you as well yes so so um growing on the kibbutz um in the children's uh, house um with my parents um very close by um physically but emotionally they were doing other things and um, it, it was tough. It was tough because somehow I had to mature and grow and survive emotionally this very, very harsh reality in terms of, I mean, 
nothing was missing on the physical side and it was a very enrich, enriching and um, a childhood full of very cool things that we did. But um, on the emotional side, you know, uh, ch children need someone to, to connect it, to be attached to. And uh, to me, uh, the, the main figure was my grandmother, Judith Kramer Ayalon, who uh, was born in Riga, uh, just after the turn of the 20th century and um, came to Israel, emigrated to Israel. Uh, at a, she was a teenager. Um, her father was killed on a terrorist attack in Haifa during the Arab rebellion in the 1929, I think. Um, and then she, she was part of the scouts movement and with her classmates, they decided to get to, to form a new kibbutz, to start a new kibbutz. And when they were... Um, getting ready for that mission just before uh, Israel's war of independence from 1946 to 1948. Um, they were situated on a small hill near the city of Rehovot in a place where today the Ayalon Institute, uh, you could take your, um, you know, your groups to visit. Um, and they worked and they were pioneers, uh, agriculture, doing things like that. But um, there was a secret, a very, very big secret, very well kept that underneath that hill, there was an underground factory that manufactured nine millimeter rounds for Sten submachine guns, um, the British Sten, Sten uh, submachine guns, which uh, the Israeli underground at the time, the Haganah used. And they knew that uh, the war of independence would break soon and would break out soon and they needed the, this ammunition. So, um, during the British mandate of uh, Eretz Israel, um, they did that without being discovered, without, uh, and, and they, they actually had, they had a lot of sacrifice. My mother at the time was a very small girl and she was out there playing, she had no idea. Um, and my, grand, my grandmother and my grandfather worked there. And um, after, the, after, after uh, the, the war was over in 1949, they formed Kibbutz Magan Michael and they moved from that place. And for many years, it was abandoned until it was kind of re rebuilt, rehabilitated and turned into a museum, which she used to come with groups and tell the story for until her death uh, a few years ago, uh, after she was, she was uh, 90, 90 plus. Mm. Um, to me, she was grandmother. She was a very special woman. Um, she loved nature and she taught me a, a lot of things about the birds and the fish and the flora and fauna of the area. Um, but also something about, um, about courage and about the ability to, um, to control the emotions. She, she wasn't very touchy-feely, but the, she was always, always there for me. And one story that uh, I, I did not witness because I was too young, uh, I think a few, a few months after I was born, um, the, the Israeli submarine Dakar that actually uh, sailed out of Portsmouth uh, towards Israel, it was, I think, 1968, um, disappeared at sea. And um, my mother's brother, my uncle, uh, was supposed to be on that submarine. Um, and um, when the news came and she said, okay, we'll just have to do what the Brits do, drink a cup of tea and breathe deeply and wait to see what happens. And after a few days, it turned out that he was on the other submarine. He was just uh, moved to the other submarine at the last moment. Mm. So he survived, um, but that that was 
who she was, very, very powerful and strong. And she was one of the founders of the Israeli Society for the Protection of Nature. So she talked about the environment way, way before it was such a trendy issue that everyone talks about like today. What a heritage. What a heritage. But I noticed it in reading all the way through your book, but I I pulled out a bit about um, your grandmother. And you you talk about the Aeolon Institute named after the biblical valley of of Aeolon. And then you go into the story of Joshua. Now, Joshua was, what, 4,000 years ago? Something Something like like that. that. And And it struck me through this book that I don't know of another nation. I mean, there may be, but I haven't. I've travelled to 40 and I haven't seen this in other nations where you can't almost, you can't tell your own story without telling Israel's story. That, that, that you, you talking to, talking, and we've talk, had conducted several podcasts with Israelis, with Jewish people. The past comes into the future almost very naturally. Um, that was just an observation I had. We love it. but yeah, and, and I would only add to that, I think it was the late Shimon Peres, the president, our president, uh, and he was a dreamer. Uh, he once said that, uh, you know, that the people, Israelis or the people of Israel, I mean, we, we are rooted, our grounds are rooted into history. Yeah. And our head and our sight is into the future of nanotechnology and things like that. And that's where, that's where we are. We are at the crossroads of our history and our, our and our um, future with the present always being, you know, um, it's the present is like, is, is like a place where you can, you could um, uh, put your stick and kind of use it as a leverage, you know, in order to leverage where we come from to where we want to get. Mm. And I think this is the only way that we can not just survive, but actually thrive in this very hostile, you know, uh, um, neighborhood that we live in. Yeah. 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 So can we talk about decision-making? Because this is something that struck me. I and mean, people listening do get this book. I, I was gripped by it. I was reading it late at night and I was gripped by it. And, and yeah, and I, I think about our own lives and our own situations uh, that we've gone through and apply what he's talking about to those situations, although they pale in comparison to situations that you were going through. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but it, you, there is so much to take from it and apply to your own lives. So I've just got a couple of quotes I've pulled out about decision-making. I hope I've pulled them out appropriately. We're great believers in leaving everything in In context, context, so you'll have to put it back if I've taken it out. Never listen to those inner voices at the peak of an unbearable situation. Endure till you reach a break and catch your breath. Hold on until the end of the hour, the day of the week. Think again and reconnect your internal um, determination. And I thought, how many of us think that in a crisis we've got to we've got to make a decision i've got to get out of here i've got you know i'm changing course um and it's often something we say to people when they came to they come to us in a crisis saying what should we do and we say wait until the crisis is over then make your decision because there's good crises and bad crises things can end up and then another quote which links in the way the human memory works under stress and underwater is not the same as in everyday events. The brain's ability to retrieve the memory required to perform a task in a new or different setting is not as straightforward as one might think. And I thought both of those are about context. So can you talk to us all about this whole thing about decision-making, what you learn, how you help people today? Because the whole world is in crisis at the minute. The whole world is in, is in trauma, 
really from what's going on and so this is very relevant to I think most people listening so one of the um, um, I, I think that one thing that kind of defines a crisis situation an emergency situation a stressful situation is that um, it's very hard to see the big picture we have a tendency to uh, enter what I what is sometimes called a tunnel vision yeah not just the vision, but a psychological tunnel vision. It's all about the here and now. It's very hard to see the context. It's, it's interesting. You were talking about the context. The context is lost in, under those extreme situations. And, um, and then we have to make decisions. And we tend to forget that there was a before and that there will be an after because we're just embedded in the impossible situation. And um, it's very, very important to... And that, that's what we train our special forces operators to get acquainted with those situations and to say, okay, there are a few things that are at my service, at my disposal, that could help me do the right thing, survive, and then take it to the next level. So there are a few, um, I will try to kind of dissect it. One is the uh, issue of the will. Because um, Sometimes, you know, no, I mean, none of us uh, have chosen that COVID-19 would uh, hit uh, the world and we, we just got it and we just have to deal with it until, you know, the vaccines start working and hopefully there's going to be um, a positive and new tomorrow. Um, but sometimes people make a choice to enter a war zone. I mean, you're smiling, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you found yourself in the Ivory Coast and in other places. Um, and not, not just, I mean, some people are looking for trouble, but some people are looking to do good things and to fix trouble. Yeah. And I find my, found myself, and I still find myself, time and again, making that informed choice of getting into a war zone, of getting into, uh, you know, even if there's an automobile accident on the highway and you stop because you want to go and, and, and help. So you know that you're entering a situation that might be unbearable and impossible. And the first things that, that usually happen is, People ask themselves when it gets hard, when it gets painful, that I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I, I want to go. I want to walk away. And by the way, most people do walk away. Mm. But when you have a mission that is valuable, when you out there, you need to, to go and save lives of people or help people in, in extreme situations, um, that tendency to walk away is very, very strong. And when I write about connecting to the internal willpower, and this is, this is what I, I mean, many times people ask me, how do I go to the boot camp and how do I succeed in getting accepted to the Israeli Navy SEALs or to other units? And the only words of wisdom that I can, that I can give them is never listen to those um, you know, inner voices because when it's, when it's painful and it's cold and, it's, and you're thirsty and your muscles ache, you convince yourself that you don't want this and you walk away only to discover later that you actually want to, but then it's too late. So one thing is, mm. it's not detachment. It's just saying, okay, I know that those voices are in there. I will honor them, but I will not listen to them. And it's easier. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's much uh, easier said than done. Um, and the second thing about decision-making is that try to, be, try to get out of that tunnel vision see the big picture and always look for the opportunity that might be embedded in the situation. Because when, when we look at Israel, you know, it's 70, uh, 72, almost 73 years of, uh, since our independence, 
all those wars, all those terrorist attacks, um, you know, a lot of bad things that have happened. And still we learn, we move forward, we grow, we grow and we thrive. And this, in, in order to get there, one needs to know how to manage those situations and managing uh, crisis situations um, are about making the right decisions, but also connecting with the people at eye level and showing them a way forward. Because many times, you know, there are so many problems that you cannot fix, but you can acknowledge the pain and the suffering um, and you can uh, reignite the hope. And I think that is so important in those situations because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, life is, is about bad things that happen and how you grow out of them. Uh, and and, and there, will, there will be no vaccine uh, to that yeah yeah you, you you talk about sort of listening to that determination that that inner determination to overpower the the other voices that are telling you to to give up walk away go get the drink when you're thirsty um what could you maybe give some principles that that maybe you learn in the training that that help you in those times of crisis to be able to try and think as clearly as you can to help with your decision making Yes, so um, first of all, um, not just that the only easy day was yesterday, but you have to take it a minute at a time, an hour at a time, a day at a time. And um, you must, I mean, I know it, sound, it might sound a little bit weird, but celebrate your small successes and acknowledge that they are there because um, at the darkest hours, you know, just before dawn hits, it's very hard to actually believe that dawn will, will break and, 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 and come. And so we need to remind ourselves uh, those things. Second thing, <clears throat> um, when you can, when you can, uh, you need to take care of yourself, self-care. Um, so sometimes, I mean, you know, I, I've been working with um, leaders in the um, municipalities uh, in, in Israel and in other places in, in Europe and, and in the United States on how to manage crisis situations. and. One of the things that I, I talk about usually is that, you know, when you're sitting, when, you, when, when, when the mayor of a, of a town or a city who is in charge of the lives of millions or, or, or hundreds of thousands of people, and, and they have to make sure that uh, there's electricity and water and, and, you know, all the services and medical services, and there's an earthquake or a hurricane or some kind of an attack, a terrorist attack or, or whatever it is, um, I, always, I always tell them, you know, you need to care for everyone. But like when you're flying on a, on a commercial jet, we used to do that a few, a few months ago when, yeah. when the skies were open. Um, and you have that, uh, you know, the, the, the air stewards um, briefing you about the oxygen masks. So before you, you help someone sitting near you with the oxygen mask, you have to put on your own, mm -hmm. meaning that you have to make sure that you have all the necessary and available resources that you need in order to stay clear um, and your thoughts and your cognitive processes. And the problem is that, um, you know, when we are, um, we do, when, we do not, when we do not get sleep, when we're dehydrated or hungry, or when we have a headache or some kind of a sickness or a fever, um, our physical state affects our emotional state. So we, we, we become angry and we become uh, impulsive. And that in turn affects our cognitive abilities 
and that's where we made where we make very bad decisions. Mm. And sometimes the 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 decision should be, you know, handing over the steering wheel to your deputy and saying, I'm going to get two hours of sleep. I'll be back. Or I, I need something to drink, a cup of tea or, well, whatever you drink on your island um, or coffee. Um, but, but at the same time, um, don't let a bad decision of not doing that escalate your physical state to escalate your emotional state. to es- and then, then there's a magic circle uh, that is not a good one. Uh, and that gets us into very, very bad decisions that are made. So basically what I usually do when I, when I um, mentor or, or train or coach uh, leaders, I tell them, listen, listen to your, yourself, manage your own stress levels, make sure that you have the coping resources that you need so and then you can help others and get your mission done. And at the same time, be aware, be aware of what's going on around you not just with yourself, but with the situation. So situational awareness and knowing how to manage those stress levels is very, very important. Mm. Of course, there's, there, I, I read of a, a dilemma and I thought, oh my goodness, how do you manage this? Because we're all value-based. We all, we all have values that, that drive our decision-making, that drive our, our behaviours. But then in the book, you said this, but values are often put to the test. They collide with other values in the face of a difficult decision, choosing one value over another. So when your own values are colliding and you're having to choose between values, that almost feels like pushing your your back against the wall. Well, the the truth is that many times life creates those situations because it's, it's very easy to adhere to a value, to stick to them, to behave if, if, if there's not a problem. But um, but sometimes, you know, uh, th- th- our values uh, are put into test when two values collide. And one, th- I think that you're referring to what I've, I've written about in my book is that when we were uh, training our soldiers to dive, warriors to dive, and combat diving is a very, very, um, it's tough. You, you have to be very f- physically fit, um, breathing uh, through a closed circuit uh, oxygen rebreather, um, and, and it's very different. It's not like scuba diving in the beautiful you know, Red Sea and seeing corals and things like that. You fight, you fight with that rebreather. And after a few hours underwater, it's cold and dark and damp and um, it's very hard to control. And, and the, the problem is that one value is stamina, determination, go out there, get the job done against all odds. That um, was, by the way, that was the product of a few unsuccessful missions that my unit, um, uh, well, did, executed years before I I, I came in. Um, And because there was not enough stamina. So, you know, that was a trauma, that was a traumatic event to the unit. So we were trained to just go all the way. But the problem is that if you do not stop at the right time, you might lose your consciousness and drown and die and get killed. So it's, you know, the value of human life that we don't want to risk, especially not in training, but, but also in, in, in the operational work, um, vis-a-vis the value of, um, you know, go all the way, mission, complete your mission, no matter what. So um, we were all wrestling with the, those two values colliding all the time, especially in the um, more advanced parts of our dive training. Mm. 
And um, to me, the, the, what happened was that I, I was sitting there in my office as a chief instructor in the Shayetet in the Israeli Navy SEALs unit. And I was authorizing one of those very, very difficult dives, dive scenarios. And I, I asked the, um, the, the team leaders, what are you going to, how are you going to brief your uh, soldiers when to stop a dive? Because there are two values that are colliding and they didn't have a good, uh, they didn't have a good uh, uh, answer to that. And all of a sudden, it kind of came to me, it clicked that, um, that, so one value is determination, get the job done. The other is stay alive. But a third value of caring for each other could actually make the difference. And so what I told them was that as, uh, any, di any diver in, in, in the dire situation of not being able to control his uh, breath and when it becomes very, very dangerous and his consciousness is kind of, um, you know, uh, wandering, should ask himself not if he can go on, but what happened if his buddy, the other diver, loses consciousness? Is he in a good enough position and situation, I mean, you know, physical situation to conduct what we call the emergency uh, um, procedure of, of saving the life of his buddy, getting them to the, to the surface and resuscitating them if needed? If the answer is yes, go on diving. If the answer is no, just, just stop at that moment and call it a day. Because to me, I mean, the, the uh, solution to this dilemma between two colliding values was to introduce a third value that would actually kind of uh, give the, um, you know, turn that pendulum that moves between one to the other into the straight and very, very, uh, I think, uh, clear um, what to do. And, so th this is me just maybe wrongly analysing this too, but how the how your body is is probably how you are. And so was that externalising your own situation so that you could almost see what decision you need to make because you've externalised it in well, the form I, of your I body? Say, I would say that um, using the uh, responsibility that one has towards one's body, right. okay, as a gauge to am I fit or am I not fit? Um, yeah. It does two things. First of all, it, it, it shifts and focuses your responsibility on, on your mate. And then um, it kind of, you know, facilitates this baptism of fire and water and, and, and everything. But at the same time, um, it also conveys a very important message that we are here for each other and we have each other's back. Right. Mm. We talk a lot about that, but this is not, this is not a theoretical question. It's it's just it just happens, and you have to decide. Yeah. Yeah. So a a, a huge um, part that stood out to me in all this is the dissociation or the detachment um, that, and maybe in a minute you could explain to people listening what that is before we go on. But um, I want to read three quotes really from your book on this. Based on my early childhood on the kibbutz and the defense mechanisms I developed, I quickly relearned the art of detachment, entering a state of being that had little room for feelings or emotions. So there, right, is the seeds of this in your childhood, which may seem negative, but are equipping you for the future. Um, and then you're talking about the diving and we put a lot of effort into detaching ourselves from the hard and painful here and now in anticipation of reaching our goal, becoming a Navy SEAL. So there it is, you know, something you almost put an effort into later on. And then the third quote I, I took out was, when you're a fighter, 
endangering your life. These defence mechanisms are almost as important as your bulletproof Kevlar 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 (laughs) vest. You cannot function as a warrior if you are scared to death. And I thought it's really interesting that this, which is kind of, you know, dissociation, which is usually seen, oh, this is a bad thing, and that has many dynamics to it in your life. And I found that really interesting. Would you like to talk to yeah, us about yeah. that? And taking care of your mental state being as important as the weapons that you have to use as well. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, so <clears throat> I, I will start just by saying that um, over the last few years, I've been doing a lot of work on resilience training with uh, first responders, uh, medical, emergency medical teams, firefighters, uh, police officers um, in the UK, in, in the US and in other places. And it, it always, it always um, kind of struck me, you know, across places around the earth and across professions, most of us, and I'm saying us because I put myself in the same boat as um, those people who risk their lives to save other people's lives, okay? Um, and they all use this mechanism of, emotional detachment. Um, You kind of detach yourself from the situation and you try to not feel anything while you're doing your work. Um, And and, you know, imagine imagine a paramedic that has to intubate uh, a patient with a heart attack and they have to, you know, give, do all the CPR, the the procedure of resuscitation, et cetera. Um, And if if they mistake, the the person dies And, and it's just straightforward. And many of them, um, when they're on the job, they're, they are detached, detached emotionally. Um, and they somehow learn how to do it or bring it from home. I, I studied it at a very, very young age. Most of them get, get it uh, a little bit later. And then um, there are two questions uh, that, that needs to be asked about this emotional detachment. One, what is the price that one pays emotionally for using it for too much, uh, I mean, for an extended period of time when you have uh, your own family and your own kids and you can't feel anything. How could you, uh, um, you know, how could you stay in a relationship and how could you become um, a caring parent and emotionally present uh, for the well-being of your children? That's one question. And the second question is, when does it not work? Because um, when I, when I uh, served as a psychologist in the Israeli Navy SEALs unit, Occasionally, one of the warriors would come to consult with me with, you know, problems at home, relationships. Some of them had some issues. And um, as a psychologist, I'm supposed to kind of take apart those defense mechanisms and help them put them back together like Lego building blocks. Mm. But I can't because they need it. They cannot go out there and, and perform my missions if they're afraid to death or or even if they they're not emotionally detached as they should be. So... The answer is what I've learned over the years is that, um, you know, you have to, I, I, I mean, I, I learned that I need to honor those defense mechanisms, but also find a way around them. And at the same time, build the resiliency of those individuals, helping them become more flexible, knowing when to detach and when not to detach. Because the truth is that stress piles up all the time, it's like those Tetris games that falls from the sky. And eventually when you look at the suicide rates of first responders in the US, and I think also in the UK, it's staggering. I mean, four times more than the normal population. And the problem is that if you don't learn how to bend, you break. 
So it can work only uh, to a certain degree. And the other thing that I learned was that is that we can be detached. I mean, first responders can, can detach themselves very well, but there are two situations that, that it never works. One, when there's someone you know, a colleague, a friend, a family member who uh, is in the bad situation and you have to help them, that, that is when the emotional detachment would not work. And the other is when small children are involved. Hmm. That's when the paramedics and the doctors, that's when it's very, very hard for them because it, it just touches us in, in you know, the... the um, it, it's like an exposed nerve in our nervous system. We're, we just can't handle this. Mm. So going back to my military uh, years, um, again, it's, it's, it's something that you cannot do without. But to me, helping veterans, helping those who have been there, and then they finish the, the military service and they go to the next phases of their lives, they have to reconnect with their, in, in, with their internal emotions and they have to learn how to experience love and to experience companionship and trust because otherwise it would never work. And for some of us, um, and, and it doesn't have to be full-blown post-traumatic stress disorder, just by you know this, this uh, uh, metal that is forged into steel in, in the fire and the water and, and, the, the, fi and, and the, the battle, um, some of us have issues and need help in order to um, get back to life. Yeah. Mm. You, you mentioned the, the two scenarios where it doesn't work. Uh, I guess it's a bit like if your family member is having surgery and you're a surgeon, you can't do it because there's an emotional connection that you have to have someone who's disassociated from that relationship um, and talk about, you know, with children. And this may be a, a little off, but can you talk because in Israel, you often have a scenario you're faced with where children are used against Israel in combat, in terrorism. And so you have you'll have soldiers and people having to face the reality of having to deal with kids that maybe are strapped in suicide vests or so maybe could you speak to that? How do you help people deal with that scenario? Because in Israel, that's not an unusual situation. So the um, the, the scenario, the situation um, in Israel and, uh, you know, the, the Israeli Arab or the Israeli Palestinian conflict has been going on for 120 strong years. Um, it's probably not going to end soon. Um, and it's just something that we need to manage and live with. And the, um, the, the truth is, um, the, the, the most the basic truth is, you know, beyond the different narratives and the different sides and who started and who, I mean, I'm not going to go into that. But the, 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 the basic fact is that it's an ongoing tragedy. I mean, on both sides. I, th I believe that uh, those kids who are being abused by their, own, um, by their own community, by their own society, are victims. Uh, not um, and and I've 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 done I I, I did some research um, analyzing suicide bombers survivors some of which were in their early teens um, and you could see very very disturbed individuals uh, with various types of um, personality disorders and um, you know not functioning um, in many many ways that were actually sent to become shahids to become martyrs and um, and part of their war um, and uh, against Israel, and um, instead of helping them, give, giving them mental health that they and support that they need, were sent to their death. Many of mm -hmm. them uh, were killed and killed many Israelis. Many, some of them survived, uh, and then 
came in and out of our prisons. Um, and to me, so that's the, there's, there's that side that needs to be acknowledged because people in Gaza and in other places uh, are suffering from this conflict. And that has to be said. And as a psychologist, I've worked not just with uh, Jewish Israeli uh, communities, but also with uh, Arab, Muslim, uh, and Christian communities uh, in Israel and, and in other places. Um, regarding our own um, soldiers, our own um, citizens. So again, it's, it, this is what we, this is, this is the ecosystem that we live in. Um, there is no you know, fast, easy, magical solution. Um, and the way that we, um, that, that we um, get or overcome or try to overcome as much as we can this, this situation is to be very, very, very um, accountable and surgical in what we do. We want to get the bad guys, not the uninvolved, the children, the women, the, 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 those who are trapped, even, even when they are used as uh, human shields against, uh, against our soldiers. Um, we need to make sure that on the ethical side, we do not conduct anything that, is, uh, that, that might be considered as a war crime, and we do not. And again, um, you know, on both sides, occasionally things happen. I'm not, I mean, we have to acknowledge that uh, sometimes when your, your colleague was shot in front of you or was hit by a stone on the head and the rage is out there, it's very, very hard to, to control it. But that's how we educate our, uh, mm. our soldiers. And, and, um, and I've risked my life more than once in many uh, very, very dangerous uh, battle scenarios when, where my main mission was to save the lives of Palestinians. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, for anybody who's interested, we did a documentary called Quest for Truth, where we took 11 young people from seven nations to look at this. And there's a whole section on it where they talk to the IDF and they and this whole thing about the um, the code of conduct that every IDF soldier holds. And, and it was really, really, mm. really um, eye opening. Mm. But yeah. um, so if we. You, a lot happened to you. I mean, you, we talked about this in terms of other people, but this was your own journey too. What you're talking about is not just about others, it's your own journey. Um, of course, there's the whole issue of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But you took, and, and there's two quotes I want to read from the book, where you took something that was very negative on yourself and turned it around in order to be able to help others. And I think, Often people do this, that they redeem their own story by helping others. Um, mm. One was this. The accident was so horrific, so much so that I was unable to talk about it. It was too devastating. Feelings of guilt flooded over me for not being able to prevent it. And it led to a focus on safety, especially during training and responsibility as a trainer. So this situation you took, and, and as I read it, you said, but how can I... Make ensure this doesn't happen to others. How can we turn this around? And then about training to be the psychologist, you said, and, and I thought this was very insightful and probably many people might be able to relate to this in other ways. In hindsight, I now know that the choice to become a clinical psychologist and to work with traumatised soldiers was highly connected to my own journey to recovery and healing. The younger, uneducated version, uh, version of me, a Navy SEAL, holding a knife between his teeth, somehow knew that the best way to help myself would be to help others. 
Wow, what a what a turnaround. What a turnaround that can also give hope to other people. Mm. Well, you know, it's 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 interesting because um again, it it was not just written in hindsight, it was it was understood in hindsight because yeah. there were some things that I just did because I had the feeling that that was the right yeah. thing to do. Um and again, you know, the the the, the I think that the um the fastest way to learn is to teach others. And the, I think the, probably the only way to heal psychologically is to help other, others who are dealing with the same issues. I mean, that, it worked for me. Mm. And, and there's, there are two things that are, two comments that I, that I want to add about this. One is that um, the name Nathan or Natan in Hebrew, which is actually um, written Nun Tafnun, which is two, the, the three letters uh, in Hebrew, um, but it's a, it's a palindrome. It, it could be read from right to left and from left to right, the same thing. But the meaning of the name Nathan, Nathan, is giving or give, he who gave in the past. And being a palindrome to me signals that when you give some, someone something, you, 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 get, you get back. You, you gain. You, you actually, um, mm. by giving, you get a lot back. That's one thing. And the second thing is that in every crisis, there's also an opportunity. And to me, um, my, and my journey was about healing myself by healing others and helping strong people be stronger and taking care of themselves and um, helping communities bounce back from, from devastating situations. And, I, and I've worked all over the world and I still work all, all over the world. Um, but again, it's realize, the realization that by doing so, you can grow. Because today we, we, we talk not only about PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, we also talk about PTG, post-traumatic growth. And it turns out that what doesn't kill me really makes me or can make me stronger if it is being used or, or executed in the right way. And to me, um, this learning and this journey was about finding and connecting to the pain inside myself as a way to understand the pain of others who I've worked with. And it's interesting because one of the, um, one of the phrases that comes back again and again and again among combat veterans in the UK um, and in other places and in the US, all over the world is that if you haven't been there, you cannot understand it. Mm-hmm. And so many times, I mean, I mean, there aren't a lot of psychologists who have actually been to combat and, and carry those scars themselves. And so you sit with a, with a client and they said, well, I can't talk about this because you will never understand. And I was always said, yes, but I do understand because I was there. And then when one, with one wound touching the other wound, that, that's where the, the process of healing starts. Mm. Yeah, people often say to us, how do you prepare to be ready for a crisis situation? For us, we were almost killed in the Ivory Coast. And people would say, well, how do you prepare to be ready in those situations? And we say, well, there are things you can do that can help to prepare you, but you never really know how you will respond until you are in that situation. Um, and so I guess that speaks to some of, of what you're talking about. And your journey led you on to then being in charge of a recruitment process, um, as well as being a psychologist and you talk about looking for people with the the whole package um, and I'm sure there were things that you changed to improve the system and the way it all worked um, can you talk about maybe a few of the things that you thought you know these areas these could be improved to be able to help 
the people, but also what what is that whole package? What did you see in people that you thought you would be able to handle the stress and the strain, the rigors of this lifestyle to be able to handle it both during but also post-service? Well, first of all, just as a side note um, and a comic uh, stopper, I remember reading from, I think it was a Royal Navy uh, officers, um, um, you know, they they get quotes or they get, um, they sometimes get uh, uh, feedbacks from their soldiers. So someone wrote about an officer that he's got the whole six packs, but lacks the plastic thingy that holds it all together. (laughs) So so let's talk about for a minute, let's talk about the the, the whole package. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the most important thing is personality, but personality in the sense of having a very, very strong core um, that can, um, you know, sustain and take a lot of, a lot of pain and a lot of uncertainty. Um, and, and, and I'm talking about the core because it's, it's a bone that a muscle can be grown uh, around it, you know, to, to, because and give it more substance. Mm. They have to be, um, they have to be able to attach with the other members of the team because the team, you know, the power of the team is much more than the sum of its parts and it's all about relationships. So they need to, to be able to attach and to, and, and while being able to detach while fighting, they have to attach to one another. That's one of the, uh, um, you know, it's, 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 it's almost, um, it, it almost does, it, it, you think about it and say, detachment, detachment. Well, yes, it works together. Um, without a conflict, by the way. And then they have to be very smart and being able to weigh the situation, make the right decisions, but may make those decisions under stress. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, we are training, there, there are so, so many things that we can train uh, by, you know, doing this protocol again and again and again until your muscles remember how to do it. You don't have to think about it too much. So, we can train certain protocols that in an instant, when I understand that I have to, you know, I mean, strive to engagement and and get that bullet in the right place, I'm gonna do it. But when that time comes, there's an instant in which you might freeze, you might flee or run away. um, And we need that fight reaction. We need, and we need the, the, the warriors to be very, very capable of getting it right the first time. And there's oh, there will always be a first time, and you it's very hard to know in advance how that is going to play out. So every procedure and protocol that can be uh, trained in advance, we do it. We do it all the time, and we try to mimic the battle, uh, um, you know, conditions as much as we can. But training is always training. No one shoots back at you, and when you find yourself for the first time or for the first times under real fire. Some people uh, function very well. Other people don't function at all. And we try to to play with that percentage and to get it to the highest uh, peak that we can. Now, um, the thing is that the the whole reaction, the stress reaction that that we have when our life is endangered, adrenaline, cortisol, fight, fight, freeze mechanism inside our autonomic nervous system and all that, what it usually does is it dissects or almost dissects our frontal uh, cortex. That's where we think and we make informed decisions. 
and it gets us into something that is very, very, very focused and very, very, um, I mean, not complicated. It's very hard. You can't think about philosophy when you're under fire and you shouldn't, by the way. But, but having said that, and when you enter a house in the Palestinian controlled territories and you're after the bad guys and there are children in there and you have to decide in an instant of a second who you're aiming at and if, if or not you're pulling that trigger and you don't wanna hurt a child or someone who is uninvolved. So those decisions need to be made in a, you know, a flash of a second. And the mistakes um, could be very, 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 uh, I mean, th this, this, this is something uh, that could, I mean, that you would carry for your whole life of, yeah. of, of harming someone that you was not meant to be harmed. And it doesn't really matter uh, that there's a context and that you, you know, if you don't, if you don't do, you don't err. If you don't err, you don't learn. It happens. So um, I, I, um, I, I'm a believer in a very, very, um, um, I would say, strategically uh, developed and tested training protocols that we know that work. Um, and we always check ourselves in hindsight and see what worked and what did not work. And because some things that some of the things that were done for many, many years were just not effective, not efficient, so we changed them. And I believe that today, uh, the very, very high uh, level of professionalism and uh, fighting capacity is there because we, because we erred and we learned and we, um, we, we do it better today. Wow. Well, as we draw this to a close, I, I want to read what to me was the climax of the story and the hope of the story, really. I mean, just such an incredible journey you take us on in the book and they've unpacked for us now. So I want to read this. During these dives, I was focused on the mission, not allowing other thoughts or emotions to sneak into my mind. This time was different. I thought, and, and this is afterwards and you're on the beach I think and what if I get cramp in my foot what if I can't swim I'm totally alone here and there's no one who can help me these thoughts were accompanied by an emotion I had long forgotten I was suddenly afraid it was like meeting an old friend a companion who had been lost and was now knocking on my door it was almost joy for me to realize that this was happening Welcome home, old buddy, I heard myself saying. I was alive and connected to my inner feelings, and it was okay. Yotam, thank you so much. We we so appreciate you taking the time to, to share with us, to be with us. Hopefully we can have you back again. We can dive into some more specifics about some of the stuff. Excuse we... me, dive into some. Uh, <laughs> uh, well done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't even realise. Anyway, okay. couldn't <laughs> let that pass. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thank you so much. We we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If it inspired you, please rate us and subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or another podcast platform. <laughs>